Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This podcast contains themes and descriptions some listeners may find disturbing. Content warnings are available in the show description. Since the pandemic started, I've been having the craziest dreams. Um, so basically, I dreamt that I divorced my husband and we both threw a massive divorce party. And the theme was heartbreak in the time of Corona. It was actually beautiful. <laughs> um, you know, we've all started to develop all these paranoias and like all these Corona phobias. And one day I dreamt I was in public and oh my goodness, I was so stressed. It's unbelievable. I woke up and immediately washed my hands. I'm like, you know what? Miss Rona would not catch me slipping. Hey, I'm slutty clown Sophie Duker, and this is That Podcast, where Keanu Reeves saves us all using the power of dreams. We take some LSD and try to confront the unconfrontable things in life. We are talking about the freaky, fascinating world of sleep and dreams. In At One of the Podcast, we were trying to understand the phenomenon of quarantine dreams, how people across the world seem to be having anxiety dreams about coronavirus, and what Keanu Reeves has to do with any of it. We explored the possibility of gaining control of our dreams and dived into the world of lucid dreaming. And although lucid dreaming sounds sick, it turns out training yourself to become an aneronaut, or dream explorer, is A, really hard, and B, frustratingly unreliable. So since lockdown made me and the rest of the planet chronically lazy, I'm curious, are there any sexy shortcuts like mind hacks or hypnosis or oh, drugs? Now the squares have switched off, welcome to the trippy dippy act two of our podcast, where we follow the white rabbit. We're going full Keanu in the sky with diamonds. Since dreams are sort of sleeping hallucinations, let's find out. Can we harness the power of psychedelics and hallucinogens to trigger an altered state of consciousness and get in touch with our subconscious mind that way? Can we use substances to help us cross the murky boundaries between waking and sleep so we can meet and wrestle with the beasts of our unconscious anxieties, stresses, upsets and trauma? Getting in touch with our subconscious mind through the help of substances is not a new idea. The ancient Greeks had a sort of LSD equivalent that they like to use in Elysian mystery rites. There is extensive reference to soma in various Sanskrit texts, which suggests that the hallucinogenic flygeric mushroom was a part of various Hindu rituals once upon a time. And then, of course, there's ayahuasca ceremonies. If you don't know what ayahuasca is, you clearly haven't met any ex-private school hipsters lately. Ayahuasca, or... Ayahuasca is basically a South American psychotropic brew. It's originated by people indigenous to the Amazon, made from vines and leaves that will make you trip absolute balls for up to six hours. It's used in shamanic spiritual ceremonies. The shaman's job is to journey into the alternative reality of the spirit world and get advice and powers from the spirits in order to maintain the all-important balance between the natural and supernatural realms. These days, it's also popular among drug tourists. The results can vary, of course. Some people puke up their guts and have terrible adverse reactions to the drug. Others come away having stuck their heads up the arse crack of the universe in a good way. But the essential merits of the idea have survived through time. These psychonauts are trying to harness the power of a psychotropic substance in order to achieve a spiritual, mental 
emotional or psychological breakthrough. And there are serious scientists now trying to, in a much more controlled environment, and definitely not just for lulls, adapt this concept for modern psychotherapeutic treatment. For example, MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. And they are researching the use of MDMA in psychotherapeutic treatment of post-traumatic stress. MAPS train therapists to work with patients who have experienced severe trauma and who have had no success with other forms of treatment, like talking therapy, medication, hypnosis. And they've been making great strides with their work. Their clinical trials are now in phase three, the last stage before approval, and as soon as approval is finalized, they are fully prepared to make their treatment accessible to a wider pool of legends, I mean, patients. So, can psychedelics help us make genuine breakthroughs? If the science checks out and the SWATs are on board, can we actually harness the power of induced hallucinations to resolve trauma? Hi, my name is Lori Tipton. I'm from New Orleans, Louisiana. And um, I was a participant in an FDA-approved clinical trial to treat PTSD with MDMA, which a lot of people might know as ecstasy, which is the street name, um, but that can often have a lot of other things within it because it's a street drug, whereas MDMA is methylene dioxymethamphetamine. It's pure. And it became a Schedule One drug in 1985, unfortunately. Before then, people were using it in therapeutic environments, and some people still have been using it in underground therapy. But this clinical trial was sponsored by MAPS, and it was for people specifically who had been suffering with PTSD. Um, I myself, when I was admitted into the trial, had been suffering with PTSD for over a decade of my life. In 1999, my brother overdosed and passed away. In 2005, my mother killed two people and herself, and I was the one who discovered their bodies. Um, right after that, about a month and a half later, Hurricane Katrina devastated the Gulf Coast. In 2006, I was raped and subsequently became pregnant, had to have an abortion. Um, so you can see those are kind of just these traumatic incidences that followed one another. And through that, I was developing PTSD and didn't really understand the full, I guess, diagnosis of PTSD, even though I had been diagnosed with it. Um, but my life had become rather unbearable in a lot of ways. Uh, my PTSD really manifested in a lot of hypervigilance for me. I had mood swings, panic attacks, intrusive traumatic memories, insomnia. And even though I was suffering with these things, I still was able to have a long-term job. I had long-term relationships. And so I didn't really feel like I fit the characterization of PTSD, especially back in 2005 when I was first diagnosed. I really thought PTSD was something that happened to soldiers, to be honest with you. Um, now, fast forward to several years later, <laughs> a decade plus of suffering with these things. I was really fortunate because I was able to hold a steady job. I had the privilege of having extra money. And so I tried pretty much everything that you can think of to treat all of these manifestations that I was having. So I did everything. <laughs> I went from... When we look at Western medicine, I saw like psychologist, uh, psychiatrist, even like muscular therapist as far as like rolfing and massage therapy and acupuncture. Then I studied yoga. I actually became a certified yoga teacher. I went on fast. I did pretty much everything that I could think of. Of course, I took medication as well during that time. I took um, anti-anxiety medications, antidepressants. And at one point, I was diagnosed with ADHD. I mean, just all the different things I tried. And while some things would give me some relief for a little while of particular symptoms, nothing really addressed the deeper issues. And so for years, it was very defeating, feeling like I was looking for something that could actually help me and not being able to find anything that was lasting. And especially for people, even with psychedelic medicine, I'll say that like while it has worked for me significantly and, and changed my life, if not saved my life, I won't say it will work for every single person because I think it's very defeating when a person is suffering and someone offers a claim that this is the thing that's going to fix them. You know, because many times people had told me that and it didn't work. And it really uh, pushed me even further into suicidal ideation, which I definitely suffered with. Um, so there are several sessions beforehand where you build trust with a therapist before you're given the medication. In my particular study, I was given MDMA three times, and I was with my therapist not on MDMA between those times at least three times 
just therapy. So I was able to really build a basis before being given the drug and then to integrate whatever came up in those MDMA therapy sessions. I worked with a team of two therapists, a man and a woman. I think it's important to distinguish that MDMA-assisted psychotherapy, I would say in my experience especially, one of the reasons that it works so well is because the drug is paired with therapy. You are put into a uh, altered state that helps you to address maybe some of the deeper traumas in your life. And having these two guides there, it's just an amazing experience. I compared them to that scene in Poltergeist where you know, the mom has to go through to save the little girl and like the psychic ties the rope. I was like, oh, you guys are like holding my rope in case I go too far into this trauma or too far into these memories. You're here to pull me back and to save me. And it really felt like that. I felt very safe within those times. And taking MDMA is really interesting when you do it with, you know, uh, two therapists right there. (laughs) It's kind of wacky when you really start to think of it, but it turned out to be just incredible. I mean, completely life-changing, life-saving for me. I was able to really delve into these traumatic memories and what I gained was perspective. For me, you know, I had so much shame and guilt and fear wrapped around these particular situations and I was harboring those feelings within myself, sometimes unbeknownst to me. And because of that, it had really shaped the way that I had a connection between my mind and my body and therefore also a connection between myself and the world. It was a great disconnect. And I was going through the motions of my life, but I was never truly present. And because of that, one of the biggest drawbacks is that I could never truly feel joy, which to me is the hardest part. Like dealing with depression and anxiety is something that I could handle for most of my life. But once I found that I was completely lacking of joy, I really didn't want to live many times. The way that I was able to work within those spaces of using MDMA was just a complete relaxation in a way that I could not normally relax into my body. And I was able to recollect things within my memories that for whatever reason, I would say probably trauma being the most, I I was incapable of remembering beforehand. Um, For instance, like in the situation with my mother's death, there were parts of that when I walked into it, I can only you know, describe as a completely horrendous, heartbreaking scene of my mother being dead and and two women that I loved very much also being dead. There were parts of that that I could not remember. I could remember all of the details, but it was like as if somebody had made a VHS tape and like taken a chunk out of it. And when I was in the treatment room, having taken MDMA, I was able to recollect all of that. It was just crystal clear. And it wasn't as if I was searching, trying to like tell myself a story, it was like the information just presented itself to me and I understood it was true. And the same thing goes for the way that I was able to find empathy and understanding for myself, most importantly, I think, but also for several other people in my life. I was able to, oh, excuse me, I get a little upset, but I was able to find deep forgiveness and deep love, you know, for others and also for myself. Ugh. And to be unburdened of that shame and unburdened of that fear was just, I mean, it, it changed my entire life. It changed the way that I interact with everything in my world. I feel like before I did MDMA assisted psychotherapy, I saw the world through very dirty glasses And I was so fortunate to be able to have this experience because I feel like the glasses were wiped clean. And it's not to say that it was an easy process or one without sadness, but it has left me with something more beautiful than I could ever even imagine. And that would be just feeling and presence, awareness. My truth that I found in those sessions, that is my own truth, released me from the guilt of my past. It allowed me to acknowledge that great things are still available for me, like right now, um, which is something that I did not feel before at all, you know? Coming out of the therapy, as far as like the categories of things that I said earlier I was suffering with, I mean, most of them 
disappeared, if not significantly reduced. So my hypervigilance is so much less than it was before. And it's been really interesting just thinking about this past year with the pandemic and like me truly being so incredibly grateful that I had that experience with MDMA psychotherapy. Because if not, I honestly don't know if I would be alive. I feel like my fear beforehand and my hypervigilance and my ways of creating narratives in my mind about how the worst could happen may have really overtook me and taken me to some very, very dark places. And, you know, I'm just so grateful that over the last year, I've been able to navigate my emotions and feel them and allow myself to work with them instead of feeling very defined by them. So, um, for me, this saved my life. I have been so determined since going through this to help people in as much as I can, you know, to access the trial, absolutely, and trying to do my work to help any way that I can, you know, with the deregulation of the substance. And then beyond that, we have to think about once it is descheduled, how do we get it to the people who need it the most? And I'm really interested and invested in that. Um, It's become part of my life's mission to really work on that and try to help people get the resources that they need. I think that it is just, I don't know, for people who are suffering with PTSD, like myself, I can say, like, there were many times I didn't think that there was anything that was going to work for me. And I was so in the dark and in such a spiral of sadness. And now I saw that there was a light at the end of the tunnel. Reliving harrowing life experiences on loop with no say in the matter is both bizarre and distressing. And if for some, literal ecstasy is the way out of that nightmare, who are we to judge? One human's high is another human's healing. If you want to learn more, head on over to the show notes where there are further links and information. We've heard about various ways people stuck in cycles can be helped. Therapy, mastery dreams, MDMA... But it's not just individuals that are sick, it's also society. What pill can cure the trauma we are experiencing as a nation? This takes us to Act 3, the final act of our podcast, the epic concluding come down, where we confront the unconfrontable things. When talking about trauma on a national scale, it can feel like we too are revisiting the same struggles over and over and over again. It's like the UK's riding a merry-go-round of misery, and every solar rotation we whiz round a carousel of recurring injustices, abuses, and fuck-ups. From Sarah Reed to Sarah Everard, the misogyny and violence embedded in our institutions and society mean that a lot of the events that ground us down over the past year or so, unprecedented pandemic aside, have been all too sickeningly familiar. Stop the ride. I want to get off. With catharsis and making real change on my mind, and not fancying tackling stupidly large subjects on my own, I decided to have a kiki with my talented mate, Mariel. Mariel, or Ms. Richards if you're nasty, happens to be the CEO of Galdem. The Galdem crew and their contributors platform the creative and editorial work of people of color from marginalized genders for all to enjoy. And in terms of sales, engagement, and disrupting dusty, outdated modes of thinking, they're undeniably killing it. I sat down with Mariel to unpick why young people seem to be raising the same issues over and over and over and over, like a monkey with a miniature symbol, why some industry gatekeepers seem to be stuck in a coma, and whether there's any way to wake them up. It's so nice to see you after so long. Can you tell me, on the subject of dreams, do you remember your last dream? Do you remember last night's dream? Uh, Normally when I wake up and I had a dream, I I tell Joe straight away so that I can remember it. You have an amazing relationship. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) But there was something quite odd. There was an explosion that was about to happen and I was trying to stop it. And I thought we were on the same team, me and my boyfriend. But then at the climax of the dream, it turned out, that the reason we were both running towards the explosion is because Joe was going to start it, whereas I was running towards it to try and stop it. Oh, which what? is, I think, quite dark. <laughs> that is real dark. But 
you've been watching some cartoons <laughs> that have lots of explosions in them, so I think. Yeah, yeah, that, that is probably it. it. But it's hard to feel like you're not running towards a metaphor when you wake up yes. from a. <laughs> um, so talking about the state of the world and oh, whether gosh. it is going to blow up or not, mm. you are in the journalism biz. I believe mm. that's what it's called technically. That is the and industry term. The J biz. Um, <laughs> And in the JBiz, uh, the current landscape is 94% white and 55% male, which is something that clearly in its very existence, Galdem is striking against. Mm. Uh, is it any surprise that we see the same stories over and over again if the landscape is still overwhelmingly cis, white, male? Mm. Mm. No, I mean, no, it's not. <laughs> it's no surprise. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those things where I, I think that um, it's not immediately obvious that we are being served the same stories and the same perspectives over and over and over again if you open a newspaper and you're not seeking alternative sources for your news for your comment for your analysis on what's happening in the world I don't think you would immediately think that what you're reading is all essentially the same perspective you know you kind of feel like there's enough variety between the Guardian and the Telegraph and the Times and the Independent but they are still very much the same voices that you're reading across each of those different papers regardless I think of the kind of political spectrum that they cover so it is important to seek other media to consume and I think the independent media not just Galdem but other startup magazines places like Amalia, Guap, um, Aurelia are all doing incredible work in terms of platforming voices that you otherwise wouldn't hear from. You know, Galdem's not perfect. We've still got a lot of work to do in terms of making sure that we do platform a truly diverse range of voices and that we create spaces for those voices to flourish in our magazine and in our staff. But but it is super important to have that awareness and be like, OK, what am I missing? Where do I need to improve? And that, I think, is one of the hardest parts of the job. Um, I think one of the benefits of having an independent media space is that you can have a, an element of that introspection. It's slow work, mm -hmm. but you can have that element and you can dig inwards. It helps us to tell more interesting stories than we would, I think, if we were part of a massive group or a conglomerate or anything like that. Yeah. So if we're going to have a little daydream, <laughs> if you could flick a switch and enter the utopia of journalism as we would all want it to be, what would that look like? How would people tell stories? How would journalism work in your dream world? Oh, this is such like gross marketing speak, but I feel like it would be a world in yes. which Galdem is obsolete. <laughs> eh. <laughs> ah. Blow it up! Blow it all up! Blow it up! Um, in my ideal world, we would have a really diverse media landscape that would be owned by, you know, more than four groups. <laughs> we would have um, space for those independent publishers to be just as big and just as widely spread and just as geographically available across the UK, across the world, really, as the larger groups like News UK and the Times Media Group. But I think that we're getting there. Like I said, there are lots of like young startup media spaces that are doing really interesting things. And that's not just in terms of like magazine editorial places like No Signal Radio and Represent Radio doing amazing things in audio, broccoli content doing wonderful things in podcasting. We're getting there. I think that the struggle will be for each of these platforms, Galdem included, to maintain our integrity as we grow mm -hmm. and still be able to publish the stories that we want to publish in a way that works for our community and works for our staff without losing, I guess, those like radical roots. Um, let's talk about disruption because <laughs> I feel like Galdem is a disruptive force and I mean that in a good way I think the visibility of seeing Galdem's covers on a shelf mm. the visibility of seeing black and brown people at your events like the sort of physical space that Galdem and its community take up and the sort of work they do is something that really shakes the table mm. in a sort of larger sense in the world around us do you think that disruption is something that can lead to catharsis that can push change yeah yeah definitely it's that thing of nobody likes change even if you think you're super radical <laughs> nobody likes change it's scary and we get used to our routines it is difficult to let go of those things but disruption is essential I think for meaningful change um one thing that I think 
this pandemic has really shown us is that, you know, in Gaudem, we do have a lot of work still to do. We still have a lot of change to do if we want to be part of that larger change and, and reshaping of the media industry. It's very easy, I think, to start following in the footsteps of other organisations once you get to a certain size or scale. And I mean that not just in the media, I mean that kind of across anything you know you get to a certain point of success and the easiest path ahead of you is the one that's already been trodden (laughs) so you you have to be careful to make sure that you're not repeating past mistakes that the people you're trying to shake up and change have already made so there will be a certain amount of disruption I think for us to make things better and to change things in the future that's scary definitely but it's essential in terms of like the recent past like in 2020 Mm. I feel like one moment of disruption for me was when there was the various responses to the death of George Floyd mm-hmm. and Black Lives Matter being sort of a international talking point and mm-hmm. loads of like different flashpoints of responses in different industries from different people, from different public figures. And I think there was a sense that maybe kind of around the autumn of 2020, that that was a time to make noise, that that was a time to capitalise, to shift things, to literally topple old statues. (laughs) And I know that there was like a lot of resistance to that, like a lot of people saying that people shouldn't protest physically Mm. because of the pandemic, a lot of people saying that you can't just overturn things that have happened. Do you think that that sort of energy and anger, do you think that that is something that should continue or do you think that there is a sort of nuanced response or a different response that should take its place? Mm, I think that it was a scary time, I think, for anyone to be out protesting, but that was not a moment to be policing how communities' response to sustained and repeated trauma and tragedy. You know, people weren't out protesting in the streets for no reason. They weren't out risking their health for no reason. They were doing so because there was an urgent and immediate need to make change and to show that enough is enough really you know this is not the first time that we've had this I know that 2020 feels like a tipping point because of how online we'd become in that moment and how almost still the world felt in that summer Um, so this kind of massive movement suddenly felt incredibly revolutionary but we had these moments in 2016 and 2017 with the death of Trayvon Martin we had these in 2013 we've had so many moments where Black Lives Matter and the discussion of the ease of which Black lives are just snuffed out both here in the UK Mm -hmm. and in the US that it did feel like something really big needed to happen. People needed to be made aware and to discuss Mm -hmm. this in in an urgent way. In terms of how we move forwards, gosh, that's a hard question. I'm grateful for the awareness that I think last summer brought and the urgency that I think it brought in terms of the conversations we're having and in the ways that it allowed for discussions that you wouldn't have otherwise had. But, you know, the the freedom of those conversations was super important. And I think that the legacy of that summer and the conversations that so many of us were forced to have, whether we wanted to or not, will mean that something, you know, will change, whether or not that is the tipping point and, and, you know, we can expect permanent change going forwards is a different thing. I don't think that um, this is the the last moment of learning or of awareness that we'll have unfortunately but it is an important one you you do want to fix things immediately and do things all at once and have that kind of one moment of change where okay like we just blow everything up and then it's all fixed and and we can start fresh but there will be some things that naturally have to happen gradually because we're just not aware of them yet we don't know what what's next on our list to fix (laughs) we we haven't learned that much or gone that far yet yeah not everyday big explosions. Not everyday big explosions. This is giving me a whole new insight into maybe what Joe was trying to do with that explosion. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, I was trying to stop the explosion. Yeah. <laughs> he was trying to French revolution. He was trying to French revolution and I was like, no! <laughs> I'm Sandra. And I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. 
Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. I attended the Black Lives Matter protests in the summer of 2020. The crowd chanted, among others, the names George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Shukri Abdi, Belly Majinga. I thought back to 2014 when protesters condemned the police shooting of Michael Brown, and 2013 when the chants were for Trayvon Martin. It got me thinking about the Stephen Lawrence inquiry here in the 90s, and about Mark Duggan in London 2011, Mzee Mohammed Daly in Liverpool in 2016, Sarah Reid, who died the same year, Trevor Smith in Birmingham in 2019, and so, so many more. Over lockdown, I lost myself in the books Rainbow Milk and Girl, Woman, Other. Both British novels have links to the Windrush generation, a generation scarred by the trauma of state betrayal and violence. Almost 70 years after being invited by the government, a whole demographic of Brits had to suffer the threat and indignity of being wrongly detained, deported and denied legal rights. This scandal surfaced in 2018, and yet we are still so quick to forget what we learned. How can it be that so many British people have absorbed the false ideas that people can be illegal, that black and brown bodies are somehow other, that people who have made their home here should be evicted. Boris Johnson, alleged leader of the country, and Keir Starmer, alleged leader of the opposition, both keep chatting about how this pandemic is the biggest national challenge we've faced since the war. But here's a salient similarity between the Panda and the Blitz and most times of national crisis, The people who are being disproportionately affected by this crisis are the working classes, people of colour and people with disabilities. How much progress have we made? It doesn't feel like a coincidence that Alexander Boris de Feffel Johnson idolises our cigar-smoking wartime prime minister. Credit where credit's due, Winnie innovated flicking the Vs half a century before selfie culture, But your boy Churchill demonstrated not only high-key racist overtones in his writing, he also expressed Islamophobic, anti-Semitic and anti-Irish views. He had striking miners shot in Wales and was perfectly happy intentionally engineering a famine in Bangladesh. Yes, we will fight them on the beaches, might slap, but the dog from the car insurance ads is a safer bet if you're looking for a champion of equality. Game recognised game, so it's no surprise that the ruling classes of today are still obsessed with the ruling classes of the past. Yes, nostalgia dreams can be comforting, but it is high time Britain broke free of the tyranny and toxicity of its past. As long as we're locked into a nightmare where the wrong sort of people can be denied human rights and respect or disappeared without a trace, we'll without a doubt keep experiencing the traumas of a divided kingdom. If we capitalise on the excellence of this island, the fact that we're an undeniable cultural capital, the fact that we export some of the most imaginative, impactful and successful culture of any country in the world, if we work to protect and platform the most vulnerable and unheard amongst us, there's no limit to what we might achieve. The future of Britain could be a delicious dream, but, ironically, we need to stay woke for it. But can we actually do it, though? Can we break this repetitive nightmare and do we have enough imagination to dream a better future into existence? Not one where Keanu Reeves swoops in and saves us all in a hackneyed action hero fairy tale, but one where real people make real change. Is utopia something we can work towards or is it just a pipe dream? Here to try and confront these unconfrontable questions is Enno Mathon. Their piece is all about dreams, change, equality, power, and whether we can break out of unbreakable cycles. It is called Selling Dreams. Look who it is. Could we talk? I'll trick you, man, later. Yeah, in a bit, D-boy. Didn't think I'd be seeing you again so soon. Lucky for you, I just got some. Hold on, hold this. I don't smoke. Just hold it. Out late again, Darren. 
At least this time you are with a girl. <clears throat> uh, good to see you, Auntie. Hmm. Tell your mother I said hello. Yes, Auntie. <laughs> Sorry about that. Where were we? That's D-Boy, my dealer. Wait, sorry, actually, I wouldn't call him that. I wouldn't call him my dealer. Makes it sound personal. Like I have a problem. Like I'm hooked or something. I'm not hooked. And I'm not judging anyone who is. I get it. Everyone needs a bit of an escape these days. But I promised myself this was a one-time thing. A one-off just to see what it was like. Most people are shocked when I say I never had one before. At my age, how could I not? My cousin's ex-fiancé, Trevor, gave me his details, said he knew D-Boy personally, said they grew up together and he trusted him. I should have known Trevor was a poor judge of character since my cousin cheated on him. Twice. My first instinct was to say no. I'm not interested. I'm fine without any of that stuff. But then they started letting people go. Can you all hear me? Don't, don't bring me asking to... Uh, Charlene, could you just mute yourself? Sorry? Could you mute yourself? Sorry. Good. Think we're just waiting for one... Oh, there he is. I thought it was just another staff meeting that could have been an email. But then Sharon, the company director, started to read from a script. Tamara, Charlene... Read out each name like a grocery list, and then she called out mine. Mo. People started crying (coughs) on camera. And then the call ended. And that was that. Six years I've been there. Six years. All right, I got... Clepsy, Night Terror, Double D, that lasts you the whole day. Vivid. The first time D-Boy asked me what I wanted, I got all nervous, tongue-tied and sweaty. But this time I knew exactly what to say. I want a refund. (laughs) You're out of your mind. I want a refund. I say it again. Slowly this time, so he knows I'm serious. I don't do refunds. He says just as slowly, so I know he's just as serious. You wanted a dream. Yeah, but... I sold you a dream. A dream utopia. Exactly what you asked for. Well, not exactly. Not my problem. Not exactly what I had in mind. It started off great, just how I imagined it. I'm walking into work A brisk power walk because I'm about to be late And that means Nigel is about to make that joke again About me being late because I run on BPT Black people's time I make it with about 30 seconds to spare I pass Kwame on security Hey Kwame Good morning Morenike Did he just... Never mind It's just that He called me by my full name. And I don't mind, I love my full name. I just got tired of people butchering it, calling me Mo-Nike, like I'm getting sponsored or something. I guess it is nice to hear Kwame say it. But it's not just Kwame. It's everyone. You all right, Marenica? Hi, Nigel. Morning, Marenica. Morning, Stuart. Good weekend, Marenica. Yes, Paulette, very good. Oh, Morenica, glad I caught you. Sharon. There's some documents I need you to sign off on. They're in your office. Whose office? Your office. Coffee's on your desk too. My office? My name? Morenica Adamola is on the front door in gold plaque. On the front door of my office. Last week I was being let go and now... I'm the boss. It must be a mistake, or a prank, a sick and twisted joke orchestrated by Sharon and Nigel. And and now I'm marching to the main office, ready to give them a piece of my mind, and... And... That... That... That's my song! 
They're playing my entire 90s to noughties R&B Spotify playlist in the office. Got some big tunes for you this morning. I've been working all weekend playing Luther, but today I am Idris. Big shout out to my girl Marinike in the building. Could I just say a quick, quickly, yeah, thanks Mr Elba. Good morning. Good morning, how's everyone doing today? We love you, Marinika. <laughs> love you too, Nigel. And you, Paulette, Stuart, even you, Sharon. And Marcus, Marcus, I didn't know you got your job back too. And Charlene, and Tolu, Sophia, and Tamara. They're all here, all singing and typing away at their desks. And then I realise that they're not actually at their desks. They're each sitting where a department manager usually sits. So that means our company is now run entirely by people of colour. Even Kwame has his own desk. Now that I think about it, he wasn't standing at security. He was walking through it. This is a cause for celebration. <clears throat> Everybody! Drinks on me in the staff room. Um, sorry, Marenike. It's actually time for our weekly staff meeting, but we can reschedule if you want to. No, no, no. I'm ready. I am ready. I say to myself, I'm ready to march into that room and speak truth to power. Speak truth to the Sharons of the world. Speak truth on behalf of the voiceless for those who have spent years making coffees when they could be making change. For the woman made to choose between keeping her dreadlocks or her job. For the man who changes his accent to speak to his boss. And for those afraid to go by their full name, I, Morenike Adamola, will speak for you. This isn't about getting a seat at the table anymore. It's about flipping that damn table over, shaking things up and breaking them down. So yes, Sharon, I am ready. Great, good. I took the liberty of writing down some... Everybody, to the meeting room! Uh, wait, wait! Where are we going? Elevators this way. Is that a... When did we get a... That is a super slide. Coming through, excuse me. Ladies first. That's right, Nigel. Boss, ladies first. <laughs> this... This is heaven! This is what it would feel like if Wakanda was a workplace. <laughs> I haven't been this happy since... Alexandra Burke sang that duet with Beyonce on X Factor. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> good to see you all. They're all looking at me waiting to hear what I have to say. This must be what R-E-S-P-E-C-T means to Aretha. Suck it to me, suck it to me, suck it to me. <clears throat> Hello, everybody. I... <clears throat> sorry. Don't be sorry, Morenica. This is a safe space for you to speak. We're here to listen and learn, so take your time. Okay. Yeah, thanks. Well, I guess I've dreamt about this for so long. Now I don't really know what to... Here, I wrote up some cues in case you needed some prompting. How it feels to be black today. <clears throat> Exhausting. We understand. Silenced. We understand. Like a moving target. Empowered. Angry. 
Sick and tired of being sick and tired. We understand. Okay, this is... Here you go, Sharon. This is great, but... I think I should speak for myself. Go ahead. It's just that... The problem is, I'm not just speaking for myself. I'm speaking for Charlene and Marcus and all the other black... P.I.C. Black. Ethnic. Black. Non-white. I've got this, Sharon. Look, I know you're all expecting me to say something and solve everything. But that's a lot to ask of a person. We understand. And you don't have to keep... We understand. No, what I'm saying is... We understand. If you listen carefully, what I'm saying is... I don't want you to just say you understand. Or you get it because you have to. Or because everyone else does. We understand. Okay, you're saying you understand, but I don't actually think you do. Because you're doing the exact opposite of what I am asking. We understand. And it's kind of making me feel a bit... It's making me feel a bit crazy. Like I am losing my mind and you're still not listening. And yes, it is very frustrating. We understand. I am frustrated and exhausted and angry. We understand. Okay. Maybe I just need a break. A breath of fresh air. Should I start on the next card for you? Okay. Um, ah. Dear white people, it's time for you to start on this one. Keep it together, girl. Keep it together. I'm telling myself as I walk down the halls, past the portraits of Maya Angelou, Nelson Mandela and Stormzy. There's a room with no lights on. Oh, oh sorry. I thought this room was empty. They're watching training videos to teach and raise awareness. Videos of a black man arrested. Black men and women arrested. Beaten. Killed. Videos of little girls. Black boys. Another video. Another video. Another. woke up. Mad? Yeah. I still don't do refunds, you know. I know. It's okay. Shouldn't have asked. I got what I paid for, just wasn't what I expected. At least now you can say you dreamed before. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So what are you going to do now? I'll get the 299 home. Can't exactly afford Uber anymore. No, I mean, like, with your life. Mm, Well, uh, I haven't really... I haven't really thought about that. I don't know. Guess I've got to find a new job. Yeah. But you know what? You can do anything now. Like, Like, what's your dream? That was Selling Dreams by Enomophon. Disrupting the system on a national level may seem a long way from where we started with our cosy, nerdy chat on sleep and dreams. But is it really? Like the makers of Bill and Ted's excellent adventure two whole decades later, I just keep coming back to Keanu. There's a conspiracy theory that compares Keanu Reeves' 21st century face to the likeness of a dude from a 16th century painting, claiming it as evidence that the actor is actually over 400 years old. I know, pretty weak. 
If there is an ageless humanoid entity who's been posted incognito amongst the celebrity class of mankind so that they can one day save us from a particularly pernicious virus variant, it's much better odds that it's Pharrell. But, more likely, neither Keanu or Pharrell will be the one to save us. Nor will it be Oprah, no, no matter how sympathetically she gurns when told bombshells about the royal family. It won't be Keir Starmer, Wet Wipe, or Daisy May Cooper, Legend, or even Marcus Rashford, the future king. If there is one thing we've learned this year, it's that it takes collective and consistent effort to jolt ourselves out of our old ways and bad patterns. It takes communities coming together and supporting each other through a pandemic. It takes marching on the streets to demand justice. Depending on who you ask, it might even take big ass explosions, which of course I can't openly or publicly condone. You may not believe in lucid dreaming or recreational drug use, but believe in us. I believe in you. We're the good guys, the chosen ones. We are all Keanu. Through raising our awareness, sharpening our empathy and activating our imaginations, we can creep closer to the reality of our best and bravest dreams. We've come to the end of this episode and the end of our dream journey. If anyone's going to lead us to a satisfying climax, it's got to be our mascot, Mr. Reeves himself. So the podcast team went to the basement of our mind palace, dusted off the old VCR and stuck in a copy of Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure featuring 80s Keanu. That's 1980s, not the 1580s. What did we learn? Well, to be excellent to each other. So while we're up, let's work on that. See you all in the future. And until then, sweet dreams. Part two of that podcast, where Keanu Reeves saves us all using the power of dreams. And we take some LSD in order to confront the unconfrontable things in life. Was hosted by Sophie Duker and featured Mario Richards and contributions from members of the public. Selling Dreams was written by Eno Mafon. The role of Morenike was played by Lois Chimimba. D-Boy was played by Alexander Bean. Sharon by Morag Davies and Charlene by Debbie Corley. Other roles were played by the cast. It was directed by Ben Quashi with sound design by Mike Winship. The host script was written by Jennifer Baxt and Sophie Duca. Full series production credits are available in the show description. That podcast is a Story Glass and ETT co-production. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.